This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Tim Moore, the writer, author of Burning Down the House, Punk Rock Revolution and the Fall of the Berlin Wall. Tim, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Um, I'm wondering if you could just start out by sharing how you got interested in writing about this topic, how you got interested in writing about sort of punk in East Berlin. Yeah, I've had this idea in my head for a bit, probably more than 25 years. I, I ended up in, in the eastern part of Berlin basically by coincidence when I, uh, in 1992, so two years after unification, I just moved there on a lark and ended up working as a as a club DJ over there through the 90s. And um, I mean, I, I was pretty clueless about what I was getting into. I didn't really have much of a concept of what Germany was like and didn't know much about what East Germany had been like. Um, and I was just sort of looking for a place to go it, it was at the moment when it appeared if one of these sort of uh, mythical political third waves was going to be discovered, it was probably going to be in East Europe during that time. So I just sort of plunked down there. And um, I also didn't know that all of Germany, I thought all of Germany was like Oktoberfest, basically. And I thought I'd get off the plane and people would be wearing lederhosen and have giant beers. And it was going to be a real blast sitting around drinking giant beers while um, watching this political third wave be discovered. And uh, that could not have been farther from what I actually found, I, I ended up in a kind of typical East European housing block out to the eastern side of the city near the zoo, the eastern East Berlin Zoo, and um, it was it was grim. It sort of it sort of reinforced all the stereotypes I'd grown up with in in Reagan America. Um, but the crazy thing was, pretty quickly, I found my way into the scene that was happening in the central part of East Berlin, which was. It was the city was mostly empty, and people were just taking over buildings and setting up first generation of clubs and bars and galleries. The whole nightlife scene that we associate with Berlin now was being invented back then, and that's the scene I landed in, sort of by coincidence, and started DJing in. And uh, a lot of the people who set up these first generation nightlife venues had been involved with the East German punk scene in the eighties, and so I got to meet them again by coincidence at first. And um, a few of them became really close friends, and eventually one showed me a notebook that he'd kept stashed in a, in a false drawer bottom during the dictatorship that had a few lyric scraps and some photos of him and his friends. And uh, the light bulb just kind of went off, and I, I realized I wanted to tell this story sometime. Back then, I didn't know I'd be a writer, but I was hoping that sometime I'd be able to tell the story because it seemed like a kind of a corrective to the mythology that I'd grown up with. We in the states we were taught basically that the kids in East Europe wanted 
hamburgers and pop music and and Reagan said tear it on the wall and the wall magically fell and this was this was the sort of I was always skeptical about that mythology but I, I didn't have any hard evidence to, contrary to it and and now here I here I was confronted with the people who'd actually fought the dictatorship they they'd been in Stasi prison and beaten by the cops and they were the ones who sacrificed their bodies basically to to bring down the dictatorship so I was ever since then I, I'd been obsessed with the story and and then much later after I had become a, a, a writer I got the chance to go back and, and start researching it in earnest. And you went back, just before we get sort of into the book, you went back and really found the wreck. Can you talk a little bit about that research you did? Because I'm really interested in sort of, oh, did you go back and find the records of the Stasi, the reports, um, as well as interviews? Or sort of what did you do to research this? Yeah, I thought the most important resource would be the Stasi files, like you mentioned, and they are voluminous. There's a lot of material there on the punks, a lot of reports about the scene. There's interrogation transcripts. But I also wanted to tell it in a really kind of fast-paced, cinematic way. And for that, the material in the Stasi files just wasn't the best. There was a lot of mundane details, just page after page um, cataloging people's movements. You know, She got up, at, or left, a, left the house at, at 8.30, went to the bakery, bought two rolls at 8.37, got on the subway and that just wasn't the material I needed. So I ended up, I realized I had to, to interview a lot of people to get, get the material that I wanted to be able to tell it the way I wanted. And so that took about nearly a decade. It took nearly 10 years to track down everybody that I thought I needed to talk to within the scene. And I don't think it would have been possible if I didn't have some of these previous friendships and contacts from when I'd, when I'd lived there in the nineties, because a lot of the former punks are pretty, skeptical about outsiders so it took knowing a few people who could say oh no you know he's not approaching this from a typical american or typical western perspective uh, that that's what sort of got me in the door with a lot of these people but some of them are also you know the stasi was really good at their job and uh so some of the people still have lasting kind of lingering effects of the stasi psychological torture and so some of them are living more or less off the grid and, and don't necessarily want to be tracked down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it took a while to find everyone and convince them to talk to me. Only one person in the end refused to speak to me, and he had been a Stasi informer and sent a couple people in the band to jail. But everyone else agreed to talk to me. So you start out in, and you, and you give us these sort of vignettes of different um, players, sort of different participants in this punk underground and punk scene and you start out in 1977 and with um major and so i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about her and that what was really happening and, and what um east germany looked like for her and the other punks she started to meet in the late 1970s yeah major is regarded as having been the first punk in all of east germany she was 15 in 1977, and she basically saw some photos of the pistols, the Sex Pistols, in um, a West German music magazine that her older sister had. And then she heard, you could pick up Western radio in almost all parts of East Germany, and she heard the pistols on British uh, military radio or Radio Luxembourg, one of the broadcasters they could pick up. And it just spoke to her in a way that was, it was unlike anything she'd heard before. She decided this is the thing for her. And she uh, 
immediately changed her look, hacked off her hair, modified her own clothing, showed up in school with a, a badge that said destroy and um, enemy of the state was another phrase she had on her clothing. And um, by the time she was, she was 16, the Stasi opened a file on her. Um, but the scene grew up around her, basically. A bunch of people in her neighborhood and her school became the core, the early core of the punk scene in, in East Berlin. She then, by the time when she became, well, she, when she hit 18, they arrested her as an adult and uh, threw her in Stasi prison for a year. And then when she was let out, she was let out with a what they called a Berlin Verbot, meaning she couldn't go back to Berlin. She couldn't see her friends and family and was sent out to a, a town in the middle of nowhere and expected to work at a textile mill for the next five years. She ran away, went back to Berlin, was rearrested, sent back to Stasi prison for another year. And then at the end of that term, they actually expatriated her. They sent her over to West Germany just to take care of the problem. But she had a massive influence. She really was the the ground zero of the punk scene in East Berlin. And one of the things that you, you talk about with her and you have a, um, Micah, you have a number of, of individuals is this idea that instead of not having any future, like we think about when we think about punk coming out of um, England, there was too much future. Everything was really, um, prescripted and and set for them and so can you talk a little bit about what the what when they talked about their experience as a young person during this time what that was like and what what they were sort of pushing against yeah yeah, the distinction between no future and too much future is really the best way to uh, or the simplest way to to draw the distinction between western punk and, and eastern punk because eastern punk became a very eastern thing very quickly it was Sparked originally by by Western music, by a Western phenomenon, but it became very organically Eastern quickly. And that no future, too much future distinction describes it perfectly. So in England, they talked about no future because they didn't see a place for themselves in in society because of an economic situation. And in East Germany, the problem was the opposite. I mean, you started out, you were sent to communist youth organizations and then to schooling and military training and an apprenticeship and then a place in the planned economy that you had no interest in. And so the problem was too much future. And they wanted to kind of wrest control of the big decisions in their own lives. And that is what made it then into this uniquely Eastern thing. And they were running about the conditions in their own lives. So one of the big mistakes I think the Stasi made was they continued to see punk throughout the 80s as a Western phenomenon. They thought it was mimicking Western uh, pop culture. And they thought in a lot of cases it was being manipulated or, you know, like a puppet uh, by Western forces. And neither of those things was true. And I think that's one of the reasons they failed to, uh, to break it. Yeah. It's been, it was really interesting to me that um, the, th- that idea that this, the Western music was something that um, became really important, right? So the Sex Pistols or the Ramones or whatever bands they could hear um, yet they were sort of using the punk ideology, that punk subculture in a way that wasn't being used in, in sort of the Western punk sort of experiences of those subcultures. So I, I thought that was really interesting how they were sort of listening to that music, but then turning that message, that sort of DIY message, that message of um, rebellion 
into a different resistance into their own form of resistance from in inside of their sort of social space. Yeah, I think pretty quickly it it transcended music. Not only did it, not only was it no longer mimicking something Western, it was it was something bigger to them than music. They they saw it as it was basically the way they armed themselves for this battle against the dictatorship. It was their form of activism, and it it because of the the nature of society. Like when they had gigs, I'm sure we'll get to this at some stage. The gigs were all in churches because it was the only safe space and you couldn't call someone on the phone and tell them about a gig because the phones were all bugged and you couldn't send a letter or a flyer out about gigs because the mail was read and so they developed a really strong interpersonal networks what they called a whisper network so you just sort of word got around about the gigs so the the network was really strong as a result it was very very personal one-to-one and the gigs too they were they tended to be small they'd be in small churches and they might be playing to a hundred people. And so you really were looking the audience in the eye and bringing them to your cause directly one-on-one like that. And I think that was another strength of the scene. So one of the other themes, yeah, I want to get back to the churches, <laughs> but we'll go, <laughs> that was my most fascinating <laughs> thing for me. But like one of the things I thought was really interesting was that um, very quickly it, punk's, it was very visible, like being punk, especially during um, the late 70s, early 80s, is a very visible difference, right? And so very, they quickly became very visible and, and they very, they could not hide um, anywhere. And so the role of the Stasi and the role of the police and the sort of brutality that was inflicted on them on a regular basis for just choosing to dress a different way. Or, or sort of push against the government. And so can you talk a little bit about, or there, I don't know if there's any certain stories about sort of some of this police violence and brutality that you found especially, um, in, you know, important. Yeah, I mean, I think it's almost impossible from a Western perspective to conceive of what they were taking on in, in becoming punk. Some of these bands spent two years in Stasi prison mm-hmm. because of the lyrics in their songs. Um, and, Almost all the punks, like you said, because of the way they looked, they stood out. They were subject to almost daily uh, arrest and, and beatings by the police. And then eventually the police tended to be physically brutal on the Stasi. Then psychological torture was their thing. So the punks got it all. Uh, and they were also attacked by just normal members of society. Nobody likes a squeaky wheel. And I guess basically in any society, the bulk of people just kind of go along with the system, whatever the system is. And that was true in East Germany too. And there were lots of sort of resentful good citizens who would attack the punks even before the police got involved. So in the late seventies, late seventies, their biggest problem was fellow citizens before the police came in. Um, but yeah, the, the level of the, the crackdown was just, was just unbelievable. In fact, the jail terms that the punks served exceeded those of any of the other activist groups during the 80s, none of the peace activists or human rights activists, um, environment, environmental activists, none of them served terms as long as the punks. So, um, yeah. I'll add one, actually, before you, I'll add one other thing. One of the biggest surprises for me when I started researching the book was the level of paranoia that the Stasi showed towards the punk scene. It's, it's kind of, as a as a Westerner, it's hard to see why 
bunch of kids with bad haircuts would be seen as so threatening. But the deeper I got into it and the more I learned about how things had gone down, I realized that the Stasi basically was correct. Because like you said, the fact that they stood out is what made them so threatening. So there were other um, activist artists, whether visual artists or poets or writers, uh, but those people, they would produce their work, it would go out into the world, but they themselves sort of faded back into the background, whereas the punks were expressing open hostility to the dictatorship every time they walked down the street. And that was what wound up the Stasi so much. And that's also why they were able to draw so many people to their cause, too. A lot of, a lot of the, the thrill of becoming a punk was just the fact that they were doing something that people didn't think was possible. A teenager would see a punk and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're dressed like that. There's no way they can go to a comedy youth organization meeting looking like that, which means dot, dot, dot. Oh, they're not going to the communist youth organization mm-hmm. meetings. And that sort of rebellious, typical teenage rebellious aspect of the scene, I think, was really important for drawing more and more kids to the scene. Because it snowballed. In 83, the Stasi thought there were 1,000 punks and 10,000 what they called sympathizers, which uh, the Stasi said they also dressed like punks. So it's not clear how they drew the distinction. But so you're talking about 10, 11,000 people in a society of 15 million. So it's not a huge amount of people, but that's a lot of troublemakers. And they were, the 83 was also the year where they had the big crackdown where lots of punks went to jail. A lot of others were um, taken into the, conscripted into the army to serve in units that specialized in kind of political re-education. And so the first generation was really decimated by that crackdown in 83 and 84. But the influence was too broad at that stage. Kids from all over the country had seen punks and wanted to be part of it. And the scene reconstituted itself much bigger in the mid 80s. And that was, again, a baffled the Stasi. Right. And it's really interesting to me, you know, the role that these young people play. And you brought it up earlier, but I want to like talk about this more now. For me, throughout this, the most fascinating thing was the strong role of the church in in allowing a lot of this to continue um, or, or, or giving space to the punks. So can you talk a bit about the role of the church in all this? Yeah, from... Uh, I think 1978 on, the church had a sort of formally established role uh, vis-a-vis the the dictatorship, and uniformed security forces would not enter churches. And so in theory, this meant that churches could be safe spaces for oppositional activities. As a practical matter, most of the church leadership was opposed to nurturing oppositional activity. And when the, uh, the records were opened up after the fall of the wall, 5% of the church leaders were informants for the Stasi, in fact. But there were some activist ministers, and because this is the, this is the, the Lutheran, German Lutheran church, by the way, and because of the way it was structured, there wasn't really a way to enforce orthodoxy on individual congregations. And so there were some activist ministers who opened their doors to various sorts of groups, everything from um, alcoholic alcoholics to people who didn't want to serve in military service to more uh, overtly sort of political groups like peace activists and environmental activists and then also hippies and punks. And the, the, the relationship was really fraught though because sometimes the ministers who opened the doors were even at odds with their own congregations about letting the punks in. And the punks created a lot of problems in many of the churches too because they 
they would leave liquor bottles and beer bottles around the sanctuary and smoke cigarettes and uh, a lot of kind of overt sex, uh, graffiti in some of the places. There was uh, one of the, the main churches that hosted them in Berlin. They gave them a basically an apartment suite in one of the bell towers, and that was covered with anti-government graffiti that if a Stasi officer had managed to go in there and photograph, they'd have been in big trouble. Um, so throughout the 80s, yeah, the church provided that space where the concerts took place. And they also, later when, the, when there started to be what we would call zines, I guess, in the West, those were distributed through the church too, because the church had an ability to designate publications for internal use only. And uh, that kept them from being censored or, or the people involved with them from being arrested. And so they took advantage of that as well. So the church was definitely key to the scene, being able to make it through the crackdown. And can you, and so the punk scene sort of starts and, and they start hearing music from the West, but then they do start to form their own bands and the church allows for a lot of these young people to have a place to play and to see bands. So can you talk a little bit about those bands, some of the bands that formed and what that looked like? Yeah, the bands were already addressing the conditions in their own lives, in their own language. So it was German language. Um, and the criticisms in the lyrics are so explicit. I mean, you, you just can't believe the things they were saying in this police state. It turned out that the churches weren't as safe as people might have thought because, for instance, one of these bands called Nominalos, who ended up going to Stasi prison for two years, um, they were sent to prison based on lyrics that were performed in a church. And there had been an informant at the concert who basically wrote down the lyrics and turned them into a Stasi handler. And that's what sent them to jail. So the extent to which the, the church was a safe haven was, was questionable. I mean, they could get away with performing, but they still had consequences often for the things that were said within the church. And so some of these bands, so they formed bands and there were a few bands that, um, found a way to form or play, I don't know if legally, is that the best way to say it? They found a way to perform and play as part of their job. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, basically, when the crackdown of 83 and 84 failed, so the Stasi had tried the stick, and then they decided to try the carrot. And they started to encourage a few bands to audition for what they called an Einstufung, which was an amateur performance license. So in the East German system, even to have a garage band, you know, high school kids with a garage band, in order to play, you had to have an amateur performance license, which was separate from professional. There were, there were professional bands, too. There was a whole kind of uh, 70s arena rock type scene in Germany, too, of official musicians. But this is just kids and punks having garage bands. So they encouraged a few of them to get these amateur performance licenses that then allowed them to play in official youth clubs and play openly in you know, school auditoriums, that kind of thing. And so you had, by the second half of the eighties, you had a kind of split within the scene. You had the more rejectionist punks who refused to play footsie with the government in any way. And they looked down on the bands that took these licenses, but these bands did play a role. They were out playing youth clubs in tiny little towns all over the country and exposing people to who might not otherwise have seen punk to what was clearly 
it wasn't as explicit. They weren't saying the same explicitly anti-dictatorship lyrics. They, you couldn't get away with that. But they were clearly um, countercultural. And so they were. They did play a role in ex- exposing kids all over the country to this overtly countercultural style of music and culture. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, and with, you you mentioned, and I want to sort of come back because the lyric thing made me think, so with all these bands too, anything they wrote down, anything that they had that the Stasi or the police could get a hold of um, was problematic. So a lot of them ended up um, having to, quickly create and memorize and and lyrics and get really good at hiding things and, and making sure that what they sang and wrote, you mentioned somebody sort of copying down the lyrics, but this is also, um, in some ways it was very oral, uh, because they could not, uh, let those lyrics or let that information be got, you know, have be, uh, captured. That's not the best word, but by the police. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a lot of times they would burn the lyric sheets. They would they would work on it like any teenage musicians. They would work on lyrics on pieces of paper. And, but once they had lines together, they would burn all the scraps that had the the, the scribbles on them. That you did not want to have physical evidence laying around of the types of things they were saying. Definitely. Not. And another interesting thing that I found was it was not only they the relationship with the police um, and the disconnect between the police and these young people, but also their families. A lot of them were shunned from their families, thrown out. You have one story. um, I can't remember his name. You probably will um, trying to return for his father's funeral. Um, But a lot of these young people were kicked out of their homes and their parents sort of rejected them as well. So can you talk about that sort of experience or anything they said about that? Yeah, the story you're talking about, he was the the front man in a band called Planlos, who was one of the important first-generation punk bands in East Berlin. And he was already under Stasi surveillance, and they were trying to arrest him at the time that his his father died. He's estranged from his father. He'd been kicked out of his house. But his mother told people around him that she really wanted him to attend the funeral. But he knew if he left this place where he was, he was going to be arrested. So he ended up um, having uh, his girlfriend get uh, stage clothing from a theater. And he dressed in women's clothing and went to his father's funeral. And somehow it worked. He, he was able to get out of the building without being noticed, made it to the funeral. And then they tried to arrest him at the funeral itself. But he, he managed to escape okay. into the woods and, and hold out um, a few more days. But yeah, the, they got constant trouble from their families, from their employers. Almost all their employers would turn out to be Stasi informants. And if you didn't work, you could be arrested for not working. That was a, an oddity of, of East German society. 
actually inherited from the Nazi regime, that you could be jailed for being what they called sort of criminally antisocial if you didn't work. Um, the the other thing was that the Stasi would try to recruit informants within the punk scene a lot too, and they brought pressure via families also. So you you could be hauled in and said you know you, you have to start informing, and a lot of times they were really effective at at profiling people. So they would find people who they could convince were helping their friends. So they they could convince a kid, and I should point out these are often minors, so you might have some. 15, 16-year-old kid convinced that he or she is helping to keep their friends out of jail or spare their friends in interrogation or beating if they if they just give some information up. And then, of course, they could do the opposite. So uh, if you don't work with us, then your parents are going to lose their jobs or your siblings are going to get kicked out of school. So there was a, there was a lot on the line for families of, of these punk activists sort of in both directions. The, some, some of the parents kind of uh, encouraged their kids because they sympathized with the, the, the situation they found themselves in. And they also thought it was indicative of ju- injustice that they, their kids would be jailed for listening to their own music, basically, in the early days. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people didn't want to lose their jobs because their kid had a funny haircut. So, yeah, there was a intense level of pressure on the on the punk kids that often led to them having to run away from home or being kicked out of home and and that's how they also ended up finding these gray areas to live they they started to take over empty spaces what we call squatting in the west but it wasn't exactly like that because you couldn't sort of openly squat because then the police would if there was an openly squatted building the police would swoop in and clear them out but they would find apartments that were empty within regular buildings or buildings that were derelict so nobody was at all was living there and, and just go in there and, and occupy them. So they kind of managed to get themselves off the grid. They were living inside East Germany, but sort of outside society. By the second half of the 80s, they were able to do that. Um, they were able to sort of untether themselves from the economy as well. They started doing things like selling jewelry and T-shirts so they could get by without having an official job, especially as the government stopped throwing people in prison as much for not working. They carved out a kind of gray area economy, and the punks were at the lead edge of that. Yeah, there is one story of the band who would go um, outside of Berlin, but they would drive out and they'd sort of sell their wares and and get enough money to be able to play and um, travel and do that kind of thing. Yeah, that was one of these bands with the amateur license, so they could they could travel openly and play youth clubs, but it was an amateur license, so they weren't really getting money for it. But one of them had uh, one of them had a parent from originally from Switzerland, and so he had a, a Western passport. And he would go across to West Berlin and buy uh, copper wire, and he and his bandmates would form would make hoop earrings, which were everybody wanted them in the eighties, and and they were hard to come by in East Germany. They would make them by the hundreds and sell them at their gigs, and they made a ton of money that way. They were able to buy a, a band vehicle and everything with the money from there handmade earrings. Well, and it's really interesting too, what they have access to and what they don't have access to. Um, there was another, another one of the punks who had sort of created a relationship with punks in another, I'm not sure which 
country it was, um, but ha- and how he pretended he was their cousin or something like that. So he could travel back and forth and sort of bring music back and forth. Yeah, that was Poland. Because of the martial law in Poland after Solidarity, even East Germans couldn't travel there unless you had a, a bona fide reason. And so in the era when it was hard to cross-check these sorts of things, a lot of the punks in East Berlin registered themselves as cousins of punks in Poland so that they could travel back and forth. And that's another interesting aspect of the story. Not only was the the West not important as the as things got, got rolling, uh, the biggest influence by far on East German punks was from the other direction. It's from Poland because the Polish punks were farther along. They could perform in the open by the second half of the eighties. There were some Polish punk bands that played to huge uh, festival stages of 10, 15,000 people. And obviously their political uh, reform movement was, was ahead of East Germany as well. So the East Berlin punks took a great amount of inspiration from Polish punks. And what, as the East Berlin punks started to do bigger and bigger, events towards the end of the 80s that was a direct result of them seeing what the Polish punks have been able to pull off. And you talk about um, the real, the summer of punk, I think you call it, in, in 1983. So much earlier than t- sort of towards the end uh, when the Berlin Wall came down and sort of the end of the what was going on in East Berlin, um, you you really saw that as being the, the important time or the important sort of summer for punk. So can you talk a little bit about why 1983 was so important? That was the first first wave of fairly large-scale events. Uh, a church in Halle that was uh, headed up by a minister called Ziggy Nea, who was one of these activist uh, ministers who took in outsider groups, he sponsored the first-ever national punk festival at his church, and uh, hundreds and hundreds of people came from all over the country. And that was... Uh, then the whole summer there were, there were events like that, and that was... That was really, I think, the key in sustaining the scene because it was right after that that the Stasi freaked out and sent most of the first wave punks either to prison or to the army. But because of the scale of these events and the visibility of them, they had already found the next generation of converts to punk. So even though the first generation disappeared, the scene kept going. And uh, I think that was basically the game changer that when... And also, when, when all that first generation once came back from prison in the army, most of them just kept going. They put the leather jackets back on and kept fighting. So other activist-minded people, to see that, that was, that was a game-changing revelation, that it was possible to resist and survive, that you could go up against the size. And one of the great unknowns in a society like that is what will actually happen to you if you run afoul of the secret police. And the punks basically did that experiment and they proved that it was possible to resist and survive. So that's why then in the second half of the eighties, you see a lot more activism go out into the streets because the punks have basically lost their fear of the, the security organs. And they are then able to, along with other activists, push things out into the streets. And that is where they can convert even bigger crowds. So, in order to get those mass demonstrations of 1989 that we know from the news uh, in, in October and November of 89 that actually toppled the dictatorship, in order for that to happen, you have to have the first groups go out into the streets 
and make the protest visible so that ordinary members of society can see what's going on and, and, and consider joining the, the cause. And then also towards sort of w- when you're sort of moving into those sort of second generation of punks or, or we're moving to the late 1980s, um, you also talk a bit, and, and you mentioned this earlier, but there's all these, it's not only the punks, right? There's the peace activists and different groups, and they ended up being together at some of these churches in some of these areas, and they didn't always get along, right? They didn't always have the, uh, you talk about um, some of the festivals that happened where um, the punks were playing and the sort of peace activists were playing as well. And that did not always work really well. So can you talk a little bit about what you saw as the differences between some of these um, activist groups, especially as you were getting into sort of the mid and late eighties? Yeah. I mean, that's another reason 1983 I think was so key and, and the church it was under the umbrella of the church that all these groups came into contact with each other. And so the punks at first were kind of put off by the way the more hippie-ish type activists were kind of, they thought of them as sort of endlessly waffling about everything. And the punks were much more direct. Their, their, their criticism was very direct and, and um, simple, basically. A lot of the other activists you might regard as, having kind of reformist type aims like we want to change some environmental regulations or we want to take military training out of middle school whereas the punks were just like screw the system let's bring it down and so there that form of sort of brutal simple um that message is is it resonates really well especially with young people and so i think that's one of the reasons another reason they were able to, to bring so many people to their cause was the sort of simplicity of their message but in bringing those various groups together under the auspices of the church they had to to kind of they get to know each other and deal with each other the punks became more politically aware um and the other activists became more respectful of what the punks were doing and they also i think were probably pretty shocked at the level of especially physical brutality the punks have been dealing with up to that point and again they saw the jailings and the fact that they came back out and had survived and kept going. And so the, the bringing together of all these groups was a, definitely a key. And you talked earlier a little bit about those zines, but is this, uh, or sort of that were distributed and passed around by the church. Um, so you, you talk about one called Moaning Star. And so is that what you're referring to as sort of the way that they could have these political pamphlets or leaflets, um, but they could be um, labeled as sort of internal church use? Yeah, and that one was put up by a group called the Church from Below, which was a kind of anarcho-punk um, congregation. They were all atheists, but they declared themselves a congregation, though they didn't have a, a physical space. Um, and they took on more and more importance as the as the decade wore on. So by 88, 89, Stasi regards them as the, the strongest or the most influential of all the underground political groups in part because by then a lot of the other groups were having people leave to the West a lot more. And most of the punks tended to want to stay and fight. So often when they went to jail, the Stasi would say, well, wouldn't you really rather just go to the West? What's the point of staying here? And some other activists, uh, and you, you can't fault them, um, agreed. Yeah, I'll go. But most of the punks said, no, 
they're going to do their their jail time and, and it's dead. And that also meant that the organizations with the most punks in them tended to remain the strongest or get stronger as the decade wore on and other groups kind of uh, led members. Yeah, that was, you sort of touched on my second, my next question. I was really interested. But, but that idea that, because, you know, there is these stories about the police saying to them and the Stasi saying, you know, we're just going to send you to the West. And they're like, no, I want to stay here. I want to stay and sort of be a part of this. And um, sort of, I don't want to to leave my space. I want to stay in my space and make it the space I want it to be. And I found that to be really interesting too, and and sort of shows the impact that um, the punks sort of wanted to have on, you know, they didn't want to just make us, they didn't want to make a statement and say, I don't want to be a part of this. They really wanted to make a change in East, East Germany and in politics and in the culture. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, it made them really threatening too. Now, Amishu, who I think you mentioned earlier, he was the guitar player in Namalos, and he, like all of his bandmates, went to jail for about two years. Uh, when he came out, he went back to the church-based punk group he'd known in East Berlin, and he started giving lectures on um, anarchist, sort of proto-revolutionary groups in 19th century Russia. Uh, he started a, a history club to study those sorts of things. Um he expanded way beyond music, and his file then started to be administered by the counterterrorism division of the Stasi. So it was it was passed over to a group that then regarded him as a domestic terrorist. So you could, they 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 saw just how dangerous people were who made that type of decision to come back and keep fighting, or rather to come out of jail and keep fighting. And then you sort of move into the sort of late. 1980s and Gorbachev starts to play a role in, in sort of other, and, and you mentioned um, Reagan as well, but can you talk a little bit about what was happening in the East and also um, around them with sort of the changing in the political scene and, and um, sort of who was in control in different major players and politics around the world? Yeah, well, the, the East German dictatorship remained hardline right to the end, and they ignored Glasnost and Paris, uh, Paris um so much that then by 88, I think it was, they actually banned <laughs> Russian newspapers in East Germany because they were basically too <laughs> liberal. Um, and they were very supportive of the massacre in Tiananmen Square in July 89. Um, which they made the, the the East German spokespeople made the point of saying that they basically agreed with the uh, the Chinese solution to to activism there, and that was one of the. Sorry, so the question is. Yeah, basically how the relationship between what was happening in East Germany and sort of what was going on in the rest of the world, like especially with if we we often think of Russia as being sort of <laughs> like you said, the Russia was a little too liberal, right? Um, but we also, you know, even with Gorbachev and Russia, we think of them as sort of being the leaders in some of this. Um, co- I don't know, like, I guess communism would be the best way to say it. I don't know if I want to <laughs> politically, 
Yeah, you know what yeah, I mean. Right. But they, but um, there is even this pushback. Um, East Germany, like you said, just sort of kept pushing. I don't know what my question exactly is. I just found it interesting about <laughs> how East Germany sort of just kept sort of pushing back um, when other countries are sort of moving forward, moving in a different direction. What? Yeah, I mean, with Gorbachev, Russia started to change basically from the top down. They started to institute change with the within the single party uh and then in places like hungary the same thing happened that started from within the, the government itself poland you had solidarity pushing things along but in east germany the the, the regime remained hardline to the end i mean super hardline they to such an extent that they even banned russian newspapers in the late 80s because those were regarded as as having gone too soft basically and in 89, when the Chinese um, government cracked down on activists and, and massacred people in Tiananmen Square, that's something that the East German government went out of their way to say they approved of, basically. And I think that was also a place where these officially licensed or uh, the bands with, with amateur licenses who could play at official concerts and official youth clubs, that was a moment when even those bands started to speak out and say, you know, how can how can we be part of a society that endorses that type of activity? Well, and then and so you mentioned sort of how you know Reagan came in, and I always talk about how Reagan sort of destroyed my childhood, but um, <laughs> how, like how nobody and he came in and told Gorbachev tear down that wall, and nobody really cared in Berlin. Um, on either side, it was sort of it coincided with the 750th anniversary of Berlin, and uh, people really didn't care or want to hear what the West had to say at all. Yeah, well, I mean, the people, the people who were fighting the dictatorship in the East were not simple anti-communists, and they were not um, fans of Reagan by any means. I mean, that speech had. In essence, no influence whatsoever. Nobody in West Germany cared. Um, they saw him as tarnished because of the Iran, Iran conscious uh, scandal and whatever else is going on. Um, and nobody in the East cared either because they weren't fixated on the West. None of the activists were seeking unification. None of them were seeking to become part of West Germany. They were hoping to overthrow the government and start a kind of more idealistic socialist East Germany that would remain independent. So yeah, that speech passed with very little um, attention on either side of the wall. And, and again, you know that the, the sort of the faith in the U.S. about the importance of that speech seems to get amplified the farther we go uh, away from it. Right. So it, it drives me crazy every year. Get ready for the anniversary of that speech, and people saying, "Oh yeah, Reagan had the wall torn down by making this speech." It just could not be farther from the truth. The, the the activists who brought down the wall paid for it. They went to jail. They fought the dictatorship with their bodies, and they did not want anything to do with the West, and particularly not with someone who like Reagan, who they considered warmongering and all these other things. 
No, and I find that really fascinating, right? Because we do have this first wall. We want to tear down a wall. We want to build a wall. We we're really obsessed with walls, apparently, in the U.S. Um, but but <laughs> this idea that that becomes such a sort of a touchstone in U.S. history, and we think of that moment and the importance that that, and we we create this this narrative around it that that's something that the US really did and and the power of the US which in actuality was is furthest is the furthest from the truth right well it's the same with the with the myth about pop culture too i mean i hear all the time uh americans will say well you can't dismiss the importance of of reagan's speech and i'll say well look i i've i've known dozens if not hundreds of people involved in underground politics in East Germany, and not a single one has told me um, they were inspired by Reagan. And the same is true for people sometimes point out the fact that Bruce Springsteen played a show in East Berlin in, it was either 87 or 88, and there were 200,000 people there, blah, blah, blah. But again, it's not as if people went from that show and signed up to work with opposition groups and go protest in the streets the next day. It didn't happen. None of the, there's just basically no crossover between those, those groups. We very much like to think in the U S I think that, that, that we have, we are, we are a bit full of ourselves, right. And the, the narratives that we continue to create um, and all the ways. It just seems so counterproductive to, because they're not, it's not rooted in, right. in, in fact. Or in the yeah. history, or and it doesn't give any credit to the people who are actually doing the work. Um, that the, this assumption that that someone can just come in and say a line or sing a song, and that makes everybody change. Um, when there's a lot of people doing work for a long time and and getting arrested and and being you know and and but and really making a difference, and we sort of ignore any of that. Yeah, I mean the head of the the head of the Stasi, the East German secret police trained as or allegedly trained as an assassin in the Spanish civil war. Now you're not going to bring that guy down by making a pretty speech on the other <laughs> side of the wall. No, I think like when you talk about here, these, these young people who like for 48 hours were, were just, um, talk, tortured or talked at or browbeaten by these, the Stasi. And yes. And I cannot see that if they're going to do that to, 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 you know, 14, 15, 16 year olds, 17 year olds, that what, what they would have in store. Yes. Um, an American coming in and saying something is not really going to, it's not even on the radar. Yeah. And they weren't doing that because they wanted to listen to <laughs> Phil Collins. You know I mean? It was that this just wasn't, the extent to which the uh, the punks were anti-Western is also. I mean, you also get an idea of it from the fact that they they were totally opposed to talking to Western media. Sometimes Western media would get wind of one of these illegal concerts and show up at a church, and you can see it in Stasi reports where Stasi informal is totally shocked to see a Western reporter come up to one of the punks and try to initiate a conversation, and the punks tell the reporter to piss off because they don't want to be reported on in Western media, they don't want to see their stories sold against advertising for one thing, but also more importantly, they don't want to be written about in these kind of stereotypical ways. They don't want to be dismissed as, again, as simple anti-communist or, or pro-Western. And, and they were right about that. They, they, that, that narrative did win out. And, but the, the interesting thing, and one of the reasons this, this book was, was possible is that, that meant that they remained invisible. 
they were not written about in Western media because they refused to speak to Western media. And they were ignored in the Eastern media because the Eastern media never addressed opposition groups. So the scene basically remained invisible both in the 80s and, and, and subsequently. Right, which is really interesting because when we when you get to this point that the Western media finds to be the defining point, right, of, of tearing down this wall, uh, which is not at all the defining point, and I appreciate that you didn't, that you uh, didn't end with that, right? You kept talking about, right, because <laughs> you could, we could just end with that. Um, but you talk about one of the bands playing in the West, like they had the opportunity to sort of go back and forth and go to the West. And so they played in West Berlin. And at the time, their friends started showing up. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that experience and sort of how East Germany started to disintegrate um, in the late 80s? Yeah, that was the night of November 9th, mm-hmm. 89, the night the wall fell. Two of the bands with the uh, amateur licenses had been given the right to cross over and play a gig in West Berlin. And they were mid-show when friends of theirs from the East started turning up at the gig and but well they couldn't they couldn't make out to face it. They were up on stage playing and they just saw people waving East German passports in the air and they couldn't figure out what was going on. And they finished their set and everyone swarmed them and said, Oh the wall's falling, the wall's falling and it was people that they'd they'd seen back in East Berlin earlier that day who were at the show. And they they actually um broke up the band that night. They basically figured that their goals had been met. So that was it. Right. And that was true for, uh, you know, after one of the things that you mentioned about the, we see that as sort of this monolithic event, but, but, you know, the Stasi showed up on the 10th of November (laughs) trying to arrest one of the, one of the the punks in in Erfurt. And things didn't change as quickly as we think in retrospect. Uh, But the music scene did that. The, basically the music scene evaporated overnight because the, the bands realized not only had they brought the government down, but now the, the message and the music was going to have to change for the new political reality. And so they poured most of the energy as opposed to music. They poured it into kind of creating physical spaces after the fall of the wall. They, that's the scene that I ended up then walking into by coincidence um, where they were taking over buildings and sort of setting up these idealistically driven oases within East Berlin where they could continue to live the, the way they wanted, despite the fact that, it was clear unification was going to take place and they had basically lost control of the political process. No, and I found that really interesting, right? That the you know, the this this wall comes down, but and, and these bands sort of break up, but they don't the the band members don't just say, Okay, I'm I'm gonna move, right? They go back and they want to create that space, those spaces that they were really fighting for and really pushing for. Um, and so you talk a bit about those sort of spaces that they started to um, be able to create and, and, and those, the different um, ways in which they could form the Germany that they wanted, the Berlin that they wanted um, and, and the world that they wanted. And so can you talk a little bit more maybe about sort of what you saw or, or what they were able to start to do? Yeah. You know, I think you hear sometimes people talk about nostalgia, which is this kind of Eastern nostalgia and it tends to be almost snickered at as if, Oh my gosh, can you believe people want to be under dictatorship again? But I think that's a misreading of of the nostalgia of of that generation. I don't I don't know anyone really who's a, a neo-Stalinist. No one wants to live under a dictatorship again. 
but there is a wistfulness. Well, there's two things. There's a, there is a wistfulness or nostalgia for the material culture in that you and I can go home at the holidays and smell the dishwashing liquid that our parents used or the, the washing detergent that our parents used. And Eastern ones can never do that. So they can go to the physical locations they grew up, but they don't get all these other sensory aspects of home. They'll never experience that again. And I think that's powerful and that's a legitimate kind of nostalgia. But politically speaking, the nostalgia or the wistfulness is for the moment right after the fall of the wall, where it seemed for a moment that their vision might have legs, that they might be able to establish this independent country and run it the way that they had envisioned, a sort of idealistic socialist third country. Right. And so you, like you said, you went back and you um, sort of talked to these people and did this research. And some of them, um, I found it really interesting that there was even the one band member, and this might have been the one you weren't able to talk to, who for the longest time was an informant and no one knew. Um, So can you talk a little bit about um, sort of what, where these people are now, sort of what kind of... um, impact or, or influence they have right now or you know those those that are still around yeah uh just to address the um informants first of all there there is a fair amount of sympathy for people who were informants because so many of them were recruited as minors and because so many of them were doing it for what you might call the right reasons they thought they were helping their friends um the ones who are really ostracized are, are any who took money um, uh, but that's a really complicated aspect of, of the story. Um, as far as what people ended up doing, it's, it's all over the map. I would say there's no one answer. There are people involved in the nightlife scene still, um, and music. One of the, the guitar player from Plan Los makes, uh, soundtracks, makes, um, uh, film scores. There's a bunch of people involved in, in club life still. And a lot of the clubs still espouse the kind of, ideology from the scene a lot of a number of the clubs are structured as cooperatives where everyone makes the same wage regardless of what they do almost most of the dance clubs have political um wings so they can rally people to demonstrations and get word out on various causes so you see the the kind of ethos of, of east german punk to this day still influencing the scene um but as for the individual participants it's all over the map some of them have conventional jobs some of them uh a few of them like i said have basically suffered um from the psychological torture of the stasi and have a difficult time dealing with daily life it's all over the map so and this is my you might not know the answer to this but i'm again the church thing was really interesting to me so does the church Mm -hmm. today sort of um pride themselves in or, or take any credit, you know, like how does the church sort of respond to their, their involvement with the punks and with sort of some of these other resistance groups during that period of time? Um, well, the church, church leaders spent a lot of time cultivating contacts in the West and especially in Western media. So when the wall fell, they were in the best position to take credit, basically, for the revolution. So, yeah, they they are 
they paint themselves as the heroes of the revolution and they uh, that that that's the sort of mythology in west germany mm-hmm. is that the, the east german church are the heroes of the revolution whereas i i don't think that's a, a fair depiction because in many cases the church was openly opposed to the groups that were operating in some of their churches um and the the ministers who did take in outsiders like like uh ziggy in Hollywood who had that first um national punk concert in, in 83 he was branded an enemy of the state and his own church leadership did very mm-hmm. little to back him um so the upshot is that the church gets basically all the credit for the revolution whereas the the activists who were what you might call the foot soldiers the ones who were out on the streets taking the beatings the ones who i think were the the most important figures the sort of grassroots um resistance uh, activists, they don't get much attention at all because, again, because they didn't cultivate media, um, Western media attention. Right. Which is always really interesting to me, the Western media. So we've been talking for a while. So I don't, is there anything else you want to add about sort of your work or your research in this book? Um, people sometimes ask me about parallels to the current situation uh, here or elsewhere in the world. And I think, I don't think that the solution to what ails us is to pass out guitars to 15 year olds and tell them to write anti-government songs. I mean, the situation is not analogous enough, right? But I do think that the sort of fundamental lesson is important. There was a piece of graffiti they used to spray up in East Berlin that was, that said, um, don't die in the waiting mm-hmm. room of the future, which I always took as a as a rallying cry against complacency, basically. You can't sit around and wait for change to happen. You have to go out and make it happen. And I think that's sort of the, the core lesson that can be drawn from this from this story. And I but I do think it's great to have at this moment in time a, a, a concrete historical example of a grassroots youth movement that had such a big impact on its society. And they really kind of created a handbook for res- resisting authoritarianism and the fun thing too for someone like me who's who's into music, um, I mean, and who kind of I, I'm inclined to believe in the revolutionary power of rock and roll or of the arts or whatnot. And here's an example where it actually happened. So before I sort of sign off with you, do you are you working on anything right now? Are you just sort of promoting this book? Are you working on a new project that you want to sort of sell <laughs> for yourself? This book is kind of a, a summation of my life to this point. It, it, the idea came to me right after college when I moved to, to Berlin in 92. So the idea's been been in my head for 25 years, and then it took a decade to research. And, and now because of the current situation, um, it seems more eerily relevant than ever. And so I haven't really uh, thought about next steps. This This was – it was just – the story that I wanted to get out into the world for so long and to have it come out into the world and, and resonate a bit is just really rewarding. Awesome. Well, um, thanks for talking with me again. This was Tim Moore, uh, Burning Down the House, Punk Rock Revolution and the Fall of the Berlin Wall. Thank you for talking with me um, on New Books Network, New Books for Popular Culture. Thanks very much. Thanks.